You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis. I am delighted to say that for the first time in many, many months, I'm saying this in consecutive months, Dr. Harry Hagopian, sitting opposite me. <laughs> now, you lament like I do the fact that these are a bit sporadic, and that would be an understatement. But we recorded in January. We are recording in February. But obviously, the point you made to me off mic is that to talk Israel-Palestine should be as natural as breathing, perhaps, to you, shouldn't it? Well, I hope it's not as natural as breathing, uh, James, but yes, indeed, you are right. First of all, I am delighted that we're doing two consecutive uh, podcasts in two months. This is something we're not doing, we haven't done for a while now, and that's partly because we're sort of taking it a little bit more sporadically. However, I would say that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is what really earned me my political stripes when I shifted gears from being only a 100% lawyer uh, to wearing other different uh, hats. And the two other hats you know I wear are the political and the ecumenical or church related. And in a sense, when the deal of the century was brewing and it brewed for very many long months before we suddenly were served the coffee, that we, uh, it was inconceivable that I shouldn't say something about it. Now, interestingly enough, I have said a lot about the deal of the century to various uh, broadcasts and uh, organizations. However, what is distinctive about our Middle East analysis uh, podcast is that it's far more relaxed, far more laid back, far more interpersonal and interactive. And it's something where you and I can chat and where I can relax a little bit and become more personal rather than just be on my toes answering political questions with two sentence political answers. And here comes the usual disclaimer. We don't do news, do we, Harry? No, and we We're don't do news. It. Certainly not, because the irregular procedure we follow with those MEA podcasts uh, means that the rate at which news runs uh, these days, there is no way that we could do that, except if this becomes a full-time job and neither you nor I have the time for that. Now, I like the way, because we have talked about the deal of the century ourselves, particularly when we were speculating a bit more. Mm -hmm. And and actually, what has come to pass, one might argue, is is pretty close to what we talked about. But I'll leave you to explain that a bit further. Peace to Prosperity is the rather grand title that we read on whitehouse.gov. So, folks, if you want to actually see the plan in its 188-page glory, you can download it over there. Now, it's been called the deal of the century, as you mentioned, and you said we had to wait a good while before the coffee was served. Now, I'd argue this probably isn't Arabic coffee, is it? This is certainly not Arabic coffee. I like that, uh, James. This is certainly not Arabic coffee by any stretch of the imagination. And I would specify this is not a coffee that any... A Palestinian would necessarily drink, be that first thing in the morning or last thing at night. And yes, it's been called the deal of the century. It's uh, basically libeled grandiosely, labeled, libeled is a good word, actually, <laughs> labeled grandiosely as peace prosperity. But it's also known as the ultimate uh, deal. And it almost gives me visions of Star Trek and the ultimate frontiers uh, in terms of Israel-Palestine. But unfortunately, it is... Uh, 
to my mind, it is a dangerous development in the very long history, whether you want to start that history uh, pre-1948 or 1948 with the creation of the State of Israel, 1967 with the Six-Day War, or even uh, later in the 1990s with the Oslo chapter of negotiations. Whichever way you take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this is a seminal step. We might like it, we might dislike it, we might like the, uh, the sender, we might dislike the sender, we might have our very clear uh, prejudices in terms of whether we lean toward the Israeli position or toward the Palestinian position, and different people have different considerations. But from a Palestinian perspective, and from the perspective of Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Christians, Arabs basically, it is the wrong deal at the wrong time for a people who have aspired for self-determination for so long. And some Arab sources, I notice, have, have called it the steel of the century. Little oh, play on yes. words there. Oh, There are loads and loads of such uh, plays on the word deal of the century. You have the steel of the century. You have the slap of the century. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian uh, Authority's president, in Arabic, he also played on the word because deal of the century in Arabic is safqat al-qarn. Uh, qarn is century, safqa is deal. He changed safqa by changing one letter into safa, and safat al-qarn means the slap of the century. So in a sense, it's been, it's been met with a lot of opprobrium, with a lot of uh, frustration, and with a lot of, dare I add, fear in Palestinian circles about where would this lead in a world that is led by the likes of uh, President Donald Trump and uh, caretaker Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, we've long talked about whether the two-state solution, you know, is, is on its knees, is dying. A lot of people are now saying it's dead. Now, I haven't been through all 188 pages, I must confess at this point, but I suppose much as you, you are going to give us your unique take on it, a question I have to ask really is what does the deal mean for Palestinian self-determinism? That's a very good question because for many uh, months and even years, James, you are absolutely right when you question whether the two-state solution is still a viable, valid one or not. And although I have had my fears and I've said that the two-state solution is not working, I have also suggested that it is still redeemable if both sides apply themselves to an irenic or peace-led process. The reason I've said that is manifold. On the one hand, because if you look at the maps of uh, Israel-Palestine, one thing you would see, and a lot was made of those maps, not only the famous map that is used by the American administration to explain to us what their whole philosophy is or their philosophy. The, I'm the not sure whose map. philosophy. Exactly. The conceptual map. Uh, thank you that uh, Jared Kushner is so proud to point to. But there are other uh, maps as well. And if you look at the maps that Mahmoud Abbas showed at the United Nations Security Council when he 
he spoke and addressed uh, the entire world, he sort of showed a map where most of it was Palestine, and then he showed the map in 2020 where there was hardly any Palestine left, even if it were given to the Palestinians as their state. So, but I've always said that let's try and see if there is a possibility of redeeming the two-state solution, because for me, I've always considered that if two two-state solution is difficult to achieve, then the one-state solution or the unitary state is even more difficult to achieve. Because imagine if the Israeli governments, successive governments now, most of which have been right-wing, but it doesn't really matter whether it's right-wing, left-wing. I think this is an Israeli political thing, that they do not want to give back any land because they want to keep the land and they want to get rid of the uh, people. A famous uh, Palestinian Christian ambassador who served in Russia in the States but for a long time in uh, the UK and is a member of uh, the Fatah movement is Afif Safi and he always used to have one of his many, many sentences or phrases was Israel wants to get rid of the demography and keep the geography. So I've always said that let's try and find a way where those two states can live next to each other in security because the one state solution is more difficult. But I have come to realize uh, gradually that first of all, everything is becoming more difficult in terms of maintaining or sustaining a two state solution because you need land to have a state solution. And how can you have sovereignty over a land that does not exist? And if you look at what is happening with the younger Palestinian generations and all the supporters of the Palestinians, be they in the Arab masses, and I specify masses, not governments, as well as people in Europe and even some people in the United States, the tendency has been that the two-state solution doesn't work. And therefore, let's go for one state solution where everybody is equal with equal rights. That is even more difficult, but the narrative has now turned, shifted quite a bit, and the older generation, what I call the political gerontocracy of the Palestinian leadership, is still pushing the pram with the two-state solution map in it because that's what they have been working all their lives, and it's very difficult for them to do a qualitative leap and say, you know what, all our efforts for three, four decades has come, have come to nothing. We've got to now change track. But there is a palpable change of in, in political vision amongst Palestinians that it might even become a one-state uh, solution, which, in my opinion, is as difficult, if not more difficult, than having a two-state solution, so long as that uh, state is at the very least viable. You know what? I think, to be fair, it must be incredibly difficult to be a Palestinian politician anyway, not, not, you know, whatever the circumstances at the moment. But my next question is actually about whether there's a certain impotency in the Palestinian Authority, in Hamas, in Gaza. Obviously, we know there's not great cooperation and it's not got the unified front that it might need for proper positive negotiations. I've asked it before, but I am going to ask it again. In light of peace to prosperity, this deal, so-called, do we have the right Palestinian negotiators, even though they're not taking part at this point, to actually find some way forward? 
That's a very good question, and it's a rather controversial question because you're putting me a little bit on the spot there. Uh, first of all, before I delve into that, let me also say that when you talked about the uh, you wouldn't wish to be a Palestinian politician these days, I would be far more worried about the Palestinian people. The politicians always, no matter where, and I'm not only talking Palestine, I'm talking across five continents, politicians always manage to find a way to survive and enjoy themselves, no matter the dramas and the conflicts. It's the people who count. It's the people who uh, suffer. If I look at the MENA region as, uh, as a whole, and I'm digressing slightly, if I look at Syria, if I look at Iraq, if I look at Lebanon, if I look at Tunisia, if I look at Algeria, if I look at Yemen, if I look at Sudan, and the list continues, and probably of those, the most exceptional is Yemen, the people, the people are suffering, are suffering badly. It's the politicians who are, yes, they are unable to find a solution. They're fighting amongst each other, but they're still managing to live okay compared to the people. It's always the people that suffer uh, most of all. Look at what's happening in all the countries I mentioned and draw your own conclusions. Now, coming to where we are, I've often said that this uh, Palestinian leadership, and for that matter, this Israeli leadership, are both past their expiry dates, and they should go. Why? Because the Palestinian leadership is very old. I just used the word gerontocracy. It is time for new blood. It is time for new vision, and it's time for new efforts. And this is why I made a distinction between the older generations and the new generations in terms of what is the vision for Palestine these days. This dichotomy, this cleavage, between the two-state and the one-state solutions is not only a philosophical or conceptual cleavage, it's also a generational one. And I think it is very important to listen to the younger people who incidentally in Palestine since the Six-Day War took place in 1967, uh, so it's over 50 years now that there has been an occupation, the longest occupation, as far as I can say, of modern times, they've all been born and grown up in occupation. They didn't know anything else. They didn't know anything before the occupation. And therefore, for them, the idea of how to deal with the occupation might be different from the 70 and 80 year olds who are coming from Tunis, from Lebanon, from elsewhere, who re-congregated in Palestine after the uh, declaration of principles when we all thought that, well, maybe we've cracked this very hard nut and uh, are still thinking, oh, yes, we want to have a Palestine with a, with a flag uh, flying on top of all the roofs. So this is where it happens. Yes, there should be a, perhaps a change of leadership. The question is, when could the leadership change? And by leadership, I don't only mean the executive. The executive in the Palestinian leadership is becoming quite uh, redundant because they can't get their act together, either because they're of the internecine fighting between governments and Ramallah or between this faction and the other. But there is also the uh, parliamentary or the legislative side. They uh, elected a parliament whose debut deputies haven't met for donkey's years. So in a sense, there is a rusty, corrosive political configuration within Palestine. But then it's not only Palestine, just uh, travel five miles south and you come into Israel and there you have a 
prime minister, an Israeli prime minister, who is going into his third uh, parliamentary election on the 2nd of March in order to stay in power. And the reason he wants to stay in power is because he wants to avoid being taken to court and he wants to have the immunity that the prime ministerial position gives him. Otherwise, he's going to end up with charges and they've already been, he's already been indicted on three counts of bribery, fraud and breach of trust. So he's desperately trying to be re-elected and stay on as prime minister, first of all, to try and keep that immunity which would protect him or firewall him from any judicial or legal measures. But in so doing, he is becoming more and more right wing. The Israel of today is not the Israel I recognize. It's a beehive of racist, right-wing ideologues who are there literally considering all Palestinians as being uh, subhuman to them. I'm sorry to say this. Some of our listeners might say, Harry, you're getting a little bit too passionate. Well, I'm known not to be passionate, but rather forceful in my statements. I'm not saying this because I want to say it. I'm saying this because the whole idea, the whole narrative of two people, equal people, and three religions, which is what has been focused upon year in, year out, has disappeared. And now some of the statements by some of the politicians in the Israeli political right-wing spectrum, which Bibi Netanyahu is trying to court in order to be with him, to enter into a coalition with him so he stays prime minister, honestly, are as dangerous as the terrorist Palestinian factions that we constantly uh, talk about in Europe. Now, the not-a-profit quote of yours might come out here, but talking about those parliamentary elections, would a change, I mean, a, probably a complete change, of course, mean anything for the Palestinians and the possibility of peace in that region? Again, another very good question, and it's also a moot question uh, because, James, what has happened is that, you know, when going back to the Oslo years, when I was part of the second track negotiations and I was uh, living and working, I had been headhunted to go to Jerusalem and work on this as part of the uh, second track uh, team. There was hope because in Israel, as well as in Palestine, there were different uh, schools of thought about what to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Israel was famous for having its very, very different schools of thought. You had the political left, the political center, the political right. Within the Palestinian uh, arena, you used to have the secular, you used to have the radical, you used to have the Islamist. There were different kinds of uh, and colors, different hues, political hues. And what has happened over those 20, 30 years is that that has eroded. And we have seen Palestinians and Israelis being, being slowly driven to the extreme. One is being driven to the extreme Israel because of its overweening power and influence. Certainly now when Trump basically does anything that Netanyahu wants him to do. 
And conversely, the Palestinians have been driven to the extreme in terms of their demands as well. And they tell you there's no point in having negotiations. There's no point in even trying to think of the two-state solution. All this is absolute boulder dash because it's not going to work. Conversely speaking, that extremism is not from overweening influence and power, but it's from overweening powerlessness and lack of influence. The despair and the frustration of the Palestinians, be they Christian or Muslim, is so palpable, is so strong, is so painful when compared with the Israeli uh, power and influence that is almost arrogant these days. I mean, all you need to do is just look at what uh, Netanyahu says, look at what his main chief rival, uh, Benny Gantz of Kahol Lavan, uh, Blue White, is saying. It's almost like we're going to do whatever we want, and we're going to get what we want, and if you don't like it, tough luck. You get this deal, you accept this deal, which is basically... Another variation, an even poorer variation of what I call the Swiss cheese formula for the Palestinians, you take this and go and pray in your churches and mosques that we actually gave you something, rather than say, yeah, but what about the contiguity? What about the historicity of the conflict? What about the rights, etc., etc.? All this has gone uh, down the drain because there has been a hardening of attitudes from one side corresponding to a converse hardening of attitude from the uh, other side. And the 188 pages, which I have actually looked at, and I have been interviewed forensically on it by a couple of agencies, and we're not going to do this here, is basically one where you find a few hints that might be quite positive. But those hints, like, yes, it recognizes that there should be a two-state solution. It recognizes that Palestinians should have a state where they could put their famous flag on it. But then it turns around and says, yes, but its capital is not going to be Jerusalem. It's going to be in Abu Dis or in Shafat, two run-down uh, areas. Abu Dis is run-down, Shafat is next to a refugee camp. It says that you're going to have all these areas where you're going to be able to call your state. But what are those areas? Overpopulous, overpopulous populated areas where all the Palestinians are basically put in it and where there are no contiguous links between one canton and the other, one area and the other. And then you say, oh, yes, we'll open up uh, uh, tunnels and uh, bridges in order to connect you with Gaza and with each other, which has we've been there in the past and it hasn't worked and it will not work the deal says oh yes we're going to give you 50 billion how can you turn this down you are crazy who else would give you 50 billion until you start poking a little bit when you find out that 50 billion doesn't actually exist it's like uh, virtual money like monopoly money at the moment but even if it did you know if you're talking that sort of you know with, with those very sort of broken up areas of land You'd be paying billions to connect it. Of course you'd be paying billions to connect it. We, uh, For five years, ten years in this country, we've been fighting over the HS2 that links London with Birmingham and then on to Leeds and Manchester. Yeah. And uh, finally, the new prime minister, our new prime minister, decided to fork out, to cough up over two, two and a half billion from the Treasury. And what was the price to be paid? We had a change in the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Imagine if we're going to reconfigure and remodulate the power 
Palestinian entity in order to become a viable state. But besides, you're being optimistic when you say even if the money were there, the money is not there. It's monopoly money. Who's going to give it? Probably some of the Arab Gulf rich countries, a little bit from Europe, but Europe at the moment is not in its best uh, health. So it's not going to happen. Pledges, I have come to realize over many, many years of experience in this field in the region, that everybody pledges. Look at the pledges being made for Lebanon. Look at the redevelopment pledges in Syria, in Iraq, this, that, and the other. People make pledges, but then suddenly when it comes to really putting your hand in your pocket and giving the money, people start finding all sorts of excuses why that's not going to happen. So at the end of the day, yes, maybe the the name uh, to uh, state solution is there. Maybe there is in that deal a freeze on existing settlements. But hold on. A freeze on which settlements? Not only the big settlements. We're not only talking about Nevi Yaakov and Mali Adumim and all these ones. And if hot, we're talking about the outposts, which a few years ago in a different political uh, three-piece suit that Netanyahu used to wear, he used to say, oh, these are only outposts. These ones can be dismantled. And at the moment, all those are going to be re- to remain and to become part uh, of the Israeli reality. Then Hold on. More interesting, some of the problematic Israeli Arabs who are in the green line in what is known as the triangle, they are actually going to be repeopled into Palestine. And then that way, Israel again keeps the geography, gets rid of the demography. And the Palestinians are going to be given a little bit at the tail end of the Sinai that uh, uh, President uh, Sisi, another Timpot dictator, doesn't want to keep anyway because his army is having so much difficulty fighting the Islamists in the Sinai Desert. So when you take all these things together and then you look at the Arab reactions to this, you say, deal of the century? Sorry for this. This is rude of me, but I'm going to call it the bollocks of the century. That's the first time you've said that on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The trouble is, I think you've got a point. Now, what I've done, we're going to do something a bit different here. I've written down a word. Oh, dear. Four letters. Okay. And just listening to you speak on a serious note, I saw the removal of this word being far more crucial in many ways than made up sums like 50 billion. And, you know, this is the best deal you're going to get. So take it, you know. Okay. I think this is what's been removed and that is why you know maybe even back in the day of Oslo it might not have been perfect but we did have a feeling didn't we in the early 90s that maybe with some of the characters and personalities and as you say it was a bit bit richer in the political makeup but what word do you think that I've written down which the absence of this word really is causing the biggest difficulty for Palestinians Blimey, this is going to be quite interesting because you half lost me, half kept me with this introduction of yours. Throw a word in or whatever it is you're going to test me on. Let me see if I got the gist of it. That is the word. Absolutely. And I think that's the problem. Hope. A lack of hope. Because even in Oslo, there was hope. Forget forget whether it was the perfect solution. I mean, what is? Nothing is. Um, And forget how history judges it in a way. I'm worried that however history judges this, the big absence here is an absence of hope. And that really is putting a sword over the Palestinians. Uh, James, I raise my hat. 
because you have used the word, I use the words frustration and despair. I should have used the word hopelessness because you are absolutely right. The word hope is, well, hope is so many things to so many different things. Hope is spiritual, hope is religious, hope is political, hope is interpersonal, hope is, is everything. And in a sense, you're absolutely right. And I'm going to tell you something because there are so many people who've maligned the Oslo Uh, chapter of negotiations. And I'm one of those now who somewhat a little uh, skittishly, a little reluctantly, I also malign it because I have realized that it didn't deliver the goods that the we thought the Palestinians were going to get. Okay, we were uh, we were idiots, we were naive, we were incompetent, we didn't do our legal or political or uh, historical or cartographic uh, homework. Call it what you may. It's always, always easier to do a post-mortem than it is and to speak in hindsight rather than when you are involved in the act itself. I'm not desperately trying to uh, defend my track because record because I was only a little cog in a far, far bigger and huge wheel which was operating Oslo. However, I'll give you one example. For any Palestinian, and I do say more Palestinian than foreigners because also a lot of foreigners and Arabs who are not Palestinians or Jordanians use the King Hussein or Alembi Bridge to cross from uh, Israel and Palestine into Jordan. That is in itself quite an experience. It's an experience in humiliation. It's an experience in sort of self-degradation. And the Palestinians always thought, oh my God, I'm going to cross the bridge. It's going to be another one of those arrogant moments when an Israeli young upstart of a soldier comes and lords it over you because he's got a rifle on his shoulder. During the Oslo talks, I was commuting constantly between Jerusalem and Jordan. Why? Because, well, I'm from Jordan. I have a lot of regard for Jordan. I think uh, there is a, there was a lot at the time to, to talk about with the Jordanians and particularly with some members of the royal uh, household and the uh, politicians there. And for the first time ever, when I used to cross, I used to see smiles on the faces of both the Israeli officials and soldiers and people who were manning the, uh, the points there and the Palestinians because there was hope. There was for a short spell, and it was like a flash of light that didn't last very long. It was a rainbow. And we all get very excited when we see a rainbow after a thunderstorm. But then what we sometimes don't reflect upon is that that rainbow doesn't last long. Look at it, go away, have a cup of tea and come back and it's gone. And that rainbow, that moment of hope made the Israelis and the Palestinians smile to each other mm -hmm. as we crossed from one side to the other of the bridge. That to me was hope. That hope has been extirpated. It's been eradicated. It's been uprooted. It's been destroyed. And at the moment, uh, the Palestinians are not only facing a deal that is frugal, to put it mildly, but they're also now facing the whole blitz 
of a Netanyahu-led political campaign to win over the Arab countries and the African countries to basically switch allegiances and to prevent, to stave off the Palestinians from basically uh, having the ICC, the International Criminal Court, conduct its uh, uh, investigations of the killings and the misappropriations in Palestinian lands. So in a sense... All this is happening at the moment, and that element of hope, be that because of what's happening with Sudan, with the airspace, with the Gulf countries, some of them at least, who've been far more uh, outspoken than others, what's happening with the ICC, what's happening with the internal uh, politics, everything leads to believe that the Palestinians have been brought to their knees, and it's a question of, do it my way, or it is the highway. And that is very dangerous because things have a way of rebounding. Do you know, I, it was really good to visualise what you were saying there, particularly when you were talking about in the early 90s when irrespective of the qualities of, of the deal and the negotiations, you saw smiling faces, both Israeli and Palestinian. Mm -hmm. Because the, the key here, and I think it's often forgotten, actually, as you mentioned earlier, when I talk politicians, you talk people, the people themselves are human beings. It mm. sounds so flipping obvious, but yeah. they're, they're human beings. And I'd imagine that if you're a teenage IDF soldier manning a checkpoint, you're probably quite scared at times. Yeah. You probably, you know, you want to have a smile on your face, but you have fear. If you're a young Palestinian man or woman approaching one of those checkpoints, you're going to have fear and anxiety. Absolutely. But both sides have that. And, Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I think the politicians probably forget that you're, you're asking people to, to really put themselves in a place that they're not at all very comfortable with, either side. They don't only forget, James. Politicians sometimes forget, but sometimes they feed that fear with their actions so that the fear even turns into greater trepidation, greater anxiety. I fully understand that a young 25-year-old soldier at one of those checkpoints where, where he knows that every Palestinian car or man or woman who passes through those alleyways or passageways, a little bit like they used to do with cattle in the Texan cowboy films, that every one of those is probably in their own minds swearing and cussing and sort of saying all sorts of bad things. They do realize that. But the question is, why are saying this? They're saying this because a very proud and a very uh, educated uh, people, the Palestinians, are having to submit, first of all, to the Israeli increasingly dangerous occupation of Palestinian land, where international law is being flouted, with the aided and abetted by the Americans, who at the moment are simply saying, well, international law doesn't exist. Uh, you don't have to think about the refugees. So uh, United uh, Nations Security Resolution 194 doesn't exist. We don't talk about occupied lands, and I'm not putting the definite article there. So all the other uh, subsequent resolutions doesn't work. Jerusalem becomes entirely Israeli. The land goes away, this, that, and the other. International law is going. ICC, Netanyahu, and Israel is trying to get countries like Austria, like the Czech Republic, like Germany, uh, to sort of submit amicus briefs uh, to the ICC to say that they do not have jurisdiction to examine or investigate uh, the Palestinian submissions to the ICC. 
everything indicates that the Palestinians are basically being targeted. And then you have the Arab countries who, with all due respect to all their internal problems, have at the very least in the past supported the Palestinian cause. But in the last 10, 15 years, certainly with the uprisings that started in 2010, 2011, the realities of the Arab world, plus the populism that has seeped into the Arab world, plus the new generation of politicians, look at the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, look at the uh, Crown Prince of the United Arab Emirates, look at the meeting that Netanyahu had with a Sudanese politician in Uganda in Entebbe, which resulted in the Sudanese airspace now being open for Israeli air flights. That is fine. I don't mind that airspace. What I do mind is that the Palestinians are being sold down the drain. And that is, in my books, for somebody who's worked hard as an Armenian, I'm not Palestinian, I'm not Arab, I feel very pained that in my lifetime, I'm not going to see an independent Palestinian state. And probably you, who's younger than I, in your lifetime, you won't see it unless some miracle happens. So what I would like to say is when people say, so what? There's normalization between the Arab countries and Israel. Why would anybody be against that? I'm not against the normalization. Normalization has its benefits. Normalization could actually make life easier and better. Uh, for many Arab countries, for the cooperation between Arab countries and Israel. But that normalization is being done, in my opinion, for the wrong reasons. It's being done not suddenly because of a discovery of love between the two sides, but because of Iran. Iran has become the nemesis, and therefore Israel is now the ally of some of the Arab countries. Secondly, because the interests of the Arabs no longer in terms of the political establishment. I'm not talking the masses. The masses are still in their majority pro-Palestinian, but the masses are as subdued in their own countries as Palestinians are under occupation. So they're not allowed to express their opinions very freely in most countries. In some, they're still fighting. They're still struggling. I'm not sure how far they've gone with that. So in a sense, the Iran bogeyman, the occupation, the Palestinian hopes, all these are being sold down the drain. And this is what basically worries me about a deal where literally Jared Kushner, who's hardly out of political diapers himself, is suddenly now dictating to the Palestinians where they should go and discussing it with his two buddies, the Crown Princes of United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, with the blessing of his father-in-law at the White House. This is why I'm worried. I'm not worried about normalization. I want normalization. I want Israel to be that miracle that it can be. Israel is now an IT hub in the Arab world, and it can be far more, but not when it is at the expense of another people. This is where I have a problem, and I've always had this problem since uh, day one when I started accumulating those stripes, which I'm now getting rid of, by the way. <laughs> Do you know, actually, I was going to move on to the sort of political impact on the region, be it neighbours like Egypt, like Jordan, Lebanon, and so forth. But you, you've sort of touched upon that there. I am I'm touched upon that. I, mean, I would only add to that one thing. Sorry to butt in, James. I would hmm. add one thing. I mean, if 
Egypt is playing a very careful game between being friends with America and Israel. It's getting oil, it's selling oil, it's doing all sorts of things, but at the same time, not completely falling out with the uh, Palestinians. There is there is an impression that oh, we're still OK. The one country that I really feel sorry for and sorry uh, listeners uh, to this, but is Jordan, because Jordan has uh, an overwhelming number of Palestinians living in the kingdom. And the Jordanian uh, monarch, the king, is at the forefront of the pressures that are being applied against him, be that by the Americans, be that by some Gulf countries like the Saudis uh, and the Emiratis who say, we'll not help you financially and economically if you don't do uh, what uh, we want us to do. And this is why I think, uh, I hope at least, that the forthcoming trip by the Emir of Qatar to Amman to meet with the King of Jordan, King Abdullah II, might actually encourage the Qatari uh, emir to help Jordan a little bit in its moment of difficulty because the EU, the EU is now a limp piece of rag. It had so much political. I used to say in the past that the EU is not a political body. It's a banking system because they used to sort of spend money in Palestine for development and everything. And every time there was a war, they would come again and pour in some more money to rebuild what had been destroyed. That they didn't have altogether, the 27, 28, didn't have the ability to come together and force a a political decision upon the two parties. I used to deplore that. Now I deplore the fact that they're not only uh, not... Uh, a political force to reckon with. They're not even a financial or a banking force to uh, reckon with. And even something like the uh, boycott divestments and sanctions uh, campaign, the BDS campaign, that is something that the Europeans should understand very well, given their own colonial history, some of them, and given the experiences they had in places like South Africa, they're now fighting tooth and nail against that because in Europe also we have some countries which are a bunch of uh, populist timpots. I wonder where you were going with that. <laughs> so I might have to get my censoring button out. Um, no, absolutely, Harry. Now, this was a question, and I will give you a final thought. We haven't done that in a little while, and I'd like to give you a I final would like thought. a final thought, and I might surprise you with a final thought, because it's a very heartfelt final thought, actually. It's not political. Great. Uh, well, I'll look forward to that, because this has been heavy. Interesting, but heavy. And this is not a lighter question, I'm afraid. I was going to bring it up much, much earlier. um, But it's a question that you said no as an answer to about a year, 18 months ago. So maybe the question's forming in your head before I say it. But will we, in light of all this, have a third Palestinian intifada? I don't think so yet. It's very interesting, is it not, that before the deal of the century was unveiled, James, there was a series of uh, measures that the U.S. administration took, of course, with the complicit knowledge of the Israeli right-wing government, led by the septuagenarian Netanyahu. The first one was closure of the Palestinian mission in Washington, D.C., a man who's a very close ally on confidant of Mahmoud Abbas was the ambassador or the head of mission there. To be honest with you, I don't know what the Americans called them uh, in uh, in Washington, D.C. 
summarily, the uh, mission was closed. He and his wife and his children who were at school were asked to leave America. And here our colonial history in the UK helps us because we know how to deal with these political situations better than the Americans who are still a little bit naive. We accepted him to come here and become the head of mission for the Palestinian mission in London. But what I'm saying is that was the first measure. Did you get any protests or any movement in the streets, let alone in the platforms of the Arab political countries? Nothing. Then, more to the point, because you would say, okay, that's very political, that is the PLO, that is the Palestinian mission, okay, half the Palestinians think that they're a bunch of corrupt people anyway, so why should they worry about their mission closing in Washington, D.C.? Then, the U.S. administration decided to cut financial aid to UNRWA, which is the UN arm that helps the Palestinian refugees in Palestine itself, including in Lebanon, in uh, Egypt, in Syria, and some in Iraq, and certainly a large number in, in uh, Jordan. And although some of them have been also naturalized courtesy of the Hashemite dynasty in Jordan, that money was cut off from the UNRWA, the relief uh, agency. Any protest? Anything in the streets of Palestine? No. Then more money was cut off from USAID to various projects, including uh, projects undertaken by the Lutheran Church and undertaken by others across the whole of the West Bank of Palestine by the Americans because they were unhappy with the Palestinian refusal to engage with them on the U.S. deal of the century or the ultimate deal. Any movement? No movement. Then we came to the crux of the matter, which is we move Jerusalem and we give Jerusalem lock, stock and barrel east and west to the Israelis. You take it. Forget the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, forget the mosque, forget the Quran, forget the Bible, forget everything else, forget the aspirations of all the Palestinians who are uh, living in Jerusalem, who have most of them subsisted on uh, residency permits anyway. Jerusalem is for Israel. And earlier in this podcast, we talked about how they were given a little bit uh, the biblical uh, morsels of bread that fell off the table near a refugee camp or in a hamlet called Abudis as the new Palestinian capital. Jerusalem is for Israel. So we no longer started talking about Jerusalem as Yerushalayim al-Quds. We started talking about Jerusalem as Yerushalayim only. Al-Quds was dropped off summarily and rudely. Any movement on the streets? The holiest of holies in Islam, the Prophet journeyed through Jerusalem. The Palestinians, Christians had their resurrection in Jerusalem. The Palestinian Authority has been talking ad nauseum about the importance of Jerusalem. Anything? Nothing. And it felt to me like the U.S. administration, advised by the Israeli government, were doing this drip, drip, trip to see if there is going to be any wild explosions, a third intifada, as you called it, or uprising. What does intifada mean? Intifada is, comes from the verb in Arabic, yantafid. Yantafid means to shake off. 
like you shake off something. You shake off dust, you shake off misrule, you shake off oppression. That's intifada. So nothing happened. Okay, drip, drip, drip. Every time they upped the ante, nothing happened. So then we came to the big one, the monster. Or as Saddam would have said, the granddaddy of all monstrosities. And that is the ultimate deal. And here, what happened? Oh, yes, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the authority, promised the heavens and the earth that this is going to be the end of uh, the region as we know it, etc. Some demonstrations were uh, organized, and I say organized because the difference between an organized demonstration, and it happens in most Arab countries, the ruler decides to show how people support him, uh, his uh, cohorts go and tell the people, come on, get out of your houses and start demonstrating. There is no such demonstration as we understand it in this country where people carry the uh, signposts and the uh, flags and go out or the gilets jaunes in France or the ones in other countries in Europe. No, it's all organized. Even demonstrations which are supposed to echo popular discontent are actually popular discontent against the ruler organized by the ruler. In a sense, that happened a little bit in Ramallah, a few more uh, demonstrations in Gaza, and that was it. And then we stopped there as well. Okay, it might still blow up, but I'm going to join up the dots now. One, your question is very much in its place. Why are the Palestinians not protesting and demonstrating, and why do we not uh, witness a third intifada? First of all, because the Palestinians are so weary, so tired, they don't have the energy anymore. The motivation to go and speak out and the energy to speak out are not there. Why? Because the energy, 50 odd years, 50 plus years of occupation, and it's a rapacious, fierce, merciless occupation. I don't care how people sanitize it. I'm not going to sanitize it. This is not coronavirus we're talking about. This is occupation we're talking about. And they are tired. The majority of them are tired. The majority of them do not have the financial means. They're just worried about getting food on the table for them and their families and having the minimum modicum of decency in their lives. So that's the energy side of it. The motivation side, why should they be motivated when they have absolutely no trust in their political institutions? Who's going to have their back when they go out into the streets in order to demonstrate? The authority? Hamas? The Israeli snipers? The wall? Or are they all going to congregate in the Banksy famous Waldorf Hotel by the wall in Bethlehem? And that will be the headquarters of the new popular uprising. <laughs> Come on. So weariness? Lack of motivation, which means they are rudderless because there are no real politicians who are saying anything. There's no Bernie Sanders in Jerusalem. There's no Bernie Sanders in Bethlehem, Ramallah or Gaza. There are all sorts of people trying to promote and orchestrate and encourage their own projects. To date, between the day of the deal of the century until now, there's been so much promise made by the Palestinians. Yes, Mahmoud Abbas has flown the world. The 
Arab League has condemned the deal of the century. Interestingly enough, including the condemnation included those Gulf countries, namely the Saudis and the Emirates, who actually were for the deal and probably had promised Trump that they would give a large chunk of the money for it. They condemned it as well. But that to me is very easy because you say something in politics and you do something else. So that's one, Arab League. The Islamic Conference condemned it. The African Union condemned it. In the United Nations, poor Mahmoud Abbas went there and then he was kiboshed because he was told you're not going to get this across uh, into the UN Security Council because you'll get a veto for it. So he was given the right to sit there and talk in Arabic at, at length, carrying that map and trying to show it to the people who were sitting there and uh, watching it in itself a very inept performance, if I may say so. So in a sense, the motivation is not there because motivation for what? The weariness goes down to the roots of the Palestinian psyche. You look around you and you have corruption and institutional inefficiency in the country and you have corruption and treachery or betrayal by a lot of the Arab countries who profess their love and dedication and solidarity and undying faithfulness to the Palestinian cause. All this has gone. And part of it is because of the 10-year uprisings, but part of it is because the world has changed, the populism of the world has changed, and we're living new eras at the moment. And Trump, who leads this pack of populists, is very shrewd to find the time. Now, as far as he's concerned, this is another one of his reality shows that he's basically putting in front of the world and he's preening on television saying, look what I've done, guys. I've given Israel this, that, and the other. Hey, evangelical Christians, you who listen and read the Old Testament in America and somehow conveniently forget that the Old Testament and the temple of the Old Testament was basically replaced by the New Testament and the temple which is in Jesus Christ himself, as we Christians, we believe in. No, the evangelical Christians, starting with the vice president, Mike Pence, and others, are delighted that we have the Star of David in one hand and the Old Testament in the other hand, and we're saying, hey ho, the deal of the century, the ultimate deal. What ultimate deal? What ultimate century? Give me a break. That's a fantastic answer. That's all I'm saying on that. I think that's brilliant. Now, you do have a few minutes, and I know you wanted to give us your final thought, non-political. So yes. let's hear it. I'm not going to talk political. I'm not going to talk about the deal of the century. I'm not going to talk about the MENA or the Gulf region. I'm not even going to talk about faith or law. The law is very important. Our listeners should focus on what I said about the International Criminal Court. That means you've just taken off at least three or four of your hats. Yes, I have. What I want to do as my final thought is to dedicate this whole one-hour podcast on Palestine and Israel-Palestine to the late Albert Agazarian. But who is Albert Agazarian? I've never done this before. We have had so many podcasts. Before we used to do institutional podcasts. Now we're doing podcasts at our own time. And I have never in my life dedicated a podcast or an episode to anybody. I dedicate this one to Albert Agazarian, the late Albert Agazarian, he used to be one of the four musketeers of Jerusalem during the Oslo negotiations. 
four Armenian musketeers, three of which, interestingly, as Armenians in a Palestinian society, we're already a minority. As Armenian Catholics in a Palestinian society, we're a minority within a minority already. Why Albert Agazarian? Because Albert Agazarian was one of a group of four, Manuel Hassassian, Albert Agazarian, uh, George Hintlian, and yours truly, the four of us who worked together on those political issues from different sides. Albert Agazarian was a brilliant communicator. He accompanied Hanan Ashrawi during the Madrid negotiations. He was a public relations officer at Birzeit University in the West Bank. He was a graduate of history and political science at the American University of Beirut. And he used to live in the heart of the old city of Jerusalem, in the Armenian quarter, in the Armenian convent or monastery of St. Jack. He was larger than life, Albert Agazarian. And the others were, well, Manuel Hassassian is a politician and, an, uh, and a diplomat. George Hintlian was a media person. And I was a second track negotiator who worked cheek by jowl with the churches of Jerusalem. Albert Agazarian was larger than life. Anybody who knew him knew that. And he unfortunately died recently. And the statements that came out during his funeral from Palestinians, not only from Armenians, forget Armenians, from Palestinians themselves, Muslim and Christian, about this Armenian Catholic communicator who did so much for the Palestinian cause, but who more interestingly was a disciple of Jerusalem. And Albert was one of the very few people who knew every single inch of the old city of Jerusalem. He knew the history of every shop in Jerusalem, and he used to take guided tours in Jerusalem, and he would basically amaze the tourists and the people who were with him when he started to talk, oh, this one, the grandfather was such and such, the father was, and oh, I know this guy, let's go have a coffee, etc. He was a larger-than-life person, and he will be sorely, sorely missed. And he was also a friend. And so I dedicate this podcast and our efforts today at shedding maybe just one ray of light on a rather dim deal of the century to Albert Agazarian. God rest his soul. God rest his uh, soul. As uh, a lot of people said in their tweets, RIP, rest in peace. Harry, I don't know the future, clearly, nor do you. I'm sure we'll speak about this again, but that was a really insightful hour. I feel I learned a lot. i really very moved by the answer to the third intifada question. Very logical, but also, yeah, very persuasive indeed. I think maybe I might even pull that out, personally. We will see in the edit. But thank you so much for your time, as always, and, of course, for the sandwiches that we're about to enjoy. Um, <laughs> and, and, of course, to our listeners, for I hope that you've got something out of this hour because there's there's plenty to mull over and consider there. But Harry, thank you so much for your contribution. You know, there is a famous saying by a famous Syrian intellectual, Saadallah Wanous, who said, we are condemned to hope. I think it's very, very 
powerful. We are condemned to hope. Hope is a condemnation. We cannot do without it. And I resort to your word that you'd written on the piece of paper in capitals, H-O-P-E. But sometimes hope gives way, yields to melancholia. The question is, what comes after melancholia? And that is what tests our metal, our ability as human beings either to simply exist or to live. And in my opinion, Albert Azarian did not exist, he lived.